We're going to look at Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. This is Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. Brando, are you back there? Oh, okay. Pam, do we have the notes? Okay. So if you have your Bibles, you can open it to Exodus 17. And if you don't, um, you can follow along with what's going on behind me. I, <clears throat> excuse me, let me get a little sip of water here. <clears throat> Again, I'm on antibiotics for several days, so I'm not contagious. <laughs> not with this thing, anyway. Might be another cold going on, but. <clears throat> I remember it almost as if it was yesterday. It was the beginning of my junior year in college. And after 20 years of life, much of it enslaved to sin and thoughts of crushing condemnation, I had come to believe on a late August day in 1992, that's how old I am, <laughs> that salvation, including the new heart required to follow Jesus, was a free gift received simply by faith. By faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross for all of my sins, past, present, and future. I had that day in August of 1992, I had real hope, real hope for the first time in my 20 years of life. I had a real sense of hopelessness for much of those 20 years before. But that day was the first day of my life that I had real hope. I believe I was born again that day. That's the idea that Jesus uses in John 3.16. Born again to describe someone who is dead to God. Who becomes suddenly alive to God. A child of God. A son of God. Or a daughter of God. And now empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow God. And will then spend eternity with God. With him in heaven and not in hell. It was the happiest day of my life. It's still, to this day, it is the happiest day of my life. I've had great days since, but no close second. Yet, well, maybe my wedding day. But other than that, maybe the day my, okay, kids were born. <laughs> but that really is the happiest day still. But, but what happened in just a few months later was if you'd come up to me a few days after that happiest day of my life, just a couple of months later, you would have seen me walking around the wooded campus of this university in such intense, great doubt and discouragement and depression that you, you would have thought this was a different person. This was just a few months later. It was as if I'd never left the chains of my former life. It, it seemed like no time I had found myself driven out of the joy of my salvation and into the furnace of deep, searching, searing, painful doubts about God and about salvation like I'd never known before my whole life. But I wasn't done being driven. I was being driven soon enough into a battle that I'd never experienced before. A battle to learn his word, to read and to cling and to hope and pray and plead with him through it in ways I had never known. I was being driven to his people deep into friendships of great honesty and, and depth and uh, transparency of weaknesses like I'd never known. Life is war, says John Piper. And who in this room striving and struggling to follow Jesus Christ cannot say amen to that? I mean, if you are really fighting to keep believing what Jesus says about himself and to keep following him with your life and your heart. It is war and you know it. 
If Jesus had to go from the joy of baptism in the Jordan, where the Holy Spirit falls like a dove upon him, and he hears God's voice proclaim, this is my beloved son. If he had to go from that experience of bliss straight into a desert of terrible hunger and deep thirst and Satan's twisted words, why would not his followers, who were made and being made into that same image of Jesus, why would his followers expect to be led around that battle? No, we're to be conformed to his image, including the image that he, that, that, was, that was confirmed in him as he went through that struggle of battle in the desert and, and for the rest of his ministry. Life in Christ is wonderful. It's comforting. It's victorious. It is. But it's also war. It's also struggle. Sometimes our battles involve people hurting us. I don't think I've ever experienced, you know, I think it was Ricky who said it last week. I don't think I've ever experienced relational pain like I've experienced in the church, in the, in the community of God's people beforehand. We've experienced pain in our, with our own spouses, with our kids, with our coworkers. Sometimes they involve circumstances that just have nothing to do with people out there. They just come crashing down to us. Car accidents. Overwhelming bills we didn't expect. Job loss. A crushing diagnosis. Crippling depression. Even death of those we love. But... But we know, too, as believers, that what the real battle is, right, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the occasion that comes to us, whether it's their fault, our fault, nobody's fault, that the primary battle is is really not out there in those people, in those circumstances. It's in here. It's in our own hearts. That's where Satan, if he could, wants to destroy our faith and our life with God, if he can, through discouragement through condemnation, through unbelief, through the great pleasures of this world that drown out God's voice, the bad stuff and the great stuff that this world has to offer. And so when I speak of battle and warfare for us today, that is the core of what I mean. Our battles, really, at the core, is with with Satan as he tries to devour us by turning us to pleasures that cause us to ignore God and his commandments, that turn us to condemnation, that crushes our joy, An unbelief that just gives up on God altogether. In our passage today, Israel is going to see for the first time since they left Egypt that for them as for us, life following God is war. But as warriors, for the first time, they're also going to show us some things that are crucial to understand if we're to wage war successfully. So I'm going to read Exodus 17, 8 through 15. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand... Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people 
with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it. The Lord is my banner. Saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, bless the preaching of your word to our hearts. May your Holy Spirit take your word. And open our hearts to understand it, to understand where it meets us in our lives right now. Take your word and speak to us in the secret places, Lord, of our hearts. All the things you see that no one sees. That your word, which is able to divide the soul and the spirit. Able to divide and discern and judge the intentions and the thoughts of our hearts. Way beyond even our own ability. Speak there into that place. And give life through your word. Give strength through your word. Give direction, rebuke, encouragement, cleansing. Give power through your word. We ask this in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, looking at the context of this passage, which we're we're not going to go back to other chapters, but it's important to note that at the outset, until the very point in Israel's story, until this very point in Israel's story, Israel had essentially been a completely passive player in their redemption. Israel had simply watched as God, through Moses, worked the ten plagues, overwhelming Egypt. They watched as God, through Moses, divided the mighty Nile, paving a way for their escape. And they watched as God closes on Pharaoh's army, crushing soldiers, chariots, and horses underwater. They watched as he led them by pillar of fire at night and cloud by day. They watched as God turned the waters at Mirabah from bitter to sweet. They watched as God made quail a manna fall from the sky to feed them. And they watched as God, through Moses, brought water from the rock. But on this day, for the first time, something special and new is is happening. For the first time, they are being called not to simply watch, but to be active players in their redemption. A nation called the Amalekites, descended from Amalek, himself a great-grandson of Isaac through Esau, Jacob's twin, attacks them completely by surprise. These are their distant cousins. In a sense, generationally, they're almost their first cousins. But we're told in verse 8 that he comes and fights Amalek. That's the, the guy's name, but representative of the whole people. Comes and fights with Israel, Riphidim. And Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight. Now, about the Amalekites, they are Abraham and Isaac's descendants through Esau. And it's arguable they would have known the covenant promises made to their cousins, the Israelites, as well as the promise that Israel would be a blessing to all the nations that blessed Abraham's line through Israel. It's also arguable they would have heard something about Yahweh's great miraculous deliverance of Israel from the hand of Egypt. But instead of blessing their cousins or considering who Yahweh had been to them, and instead of hoping in the promise that Israel had received to be a blessing to all nations, Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, tells us this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary 
and he cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. So Israel's cousins essentially sneak up on their rear as they're wearily, tired, famished, weak, and they're making their way through this hot desert and they attack them. And they, they don't just attack them, but they go for who would have been the weakest, the sickest, the oldest, and perhaps even especially the youngest, young mothers and nursing children. And for the first time in their young existence, existence as a free nation under Yahweh's care, Israel knows what it's like to be viciously attacked and wounded. So what's, what's the first lesson we can take from this passage about spiritual enemies, spiritual battles? It's something so basic, it, it might seem unimportant, but it is important. Because we forget it so easily. And it's just this. God is going to allow enemies into our lives in order to grow us. God is going to allow enemies into our lives in order to grow us. I don't know what you do when you're attacked or wounded by someone or something outside of you or even something inside of you. Do you know what I do? A lot of times I do something that God's word tells me that I shouldn't. <laughs> I get shocked. I get surprised. I get overwhelmed. I, and I think that's natural. And I don't think God's up there saying, how dare you? But I do think what God's word is clearly calling us to is to remember that he is going to ordain that we will have to fight battles in this life. God is going to allow enemies into our lives. And he's going to do it in order to grow us. First Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. At that hint... Christian, if you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, if you're sharing in the trials, the pain, the fight, the battle that conformed Jesus, confirmed Jesus as my son, take heart and rejoice. You're being conformed. You're being worked on by your father as well. But look at what Peter says at the start. He says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. We can just gloss through that. And don't be surprised. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. So that's what, he says, don't be surprised as if it was strange. Going back to my opening remarks about my conversion in college, I remember so often, those early days especially, I was so surprised and bewildered at how fierce and ruthless the attacks of doubt and discouragement would come upon me. And that still can happen. I can, I can wake up in a stupor, half-conscious in a haze, haze and, and very soon I can tell that discouragement and other stuff's at work, anger, at work to keep me from prayer, to keep me from hope, to keep me from love, to keep me from God's promises. And I think that's just part of the enemy's plan, to come upon us unprepared. Go around the back, where's the weakest? And come upon us unexpected, if possible. I think that's one of the reasons why Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. 
In John's Last Supper narrative, before the momentous occurrence of, of betrayal and crucifixion that Jesus went through, Jesus lets the disciples know that each of these events are going to come. His betrayal, his crucifixion. And twice he says it. See, I have told you ahead of time. Before it happens. So that you will believe in me. In the same conversation he says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And the implication is, if he's in you and he's in me, he overcomes the world inside us too. And he provides the strength we need to overcome the world. But I think the enemy's attempts to surprise us and the advantage he gains by surprise is one of the reasons Jesus had to say this very basic thing. In this world, you will have trouble. But know I'm with you to sustain you. Brothers and sisters, today, this day today, you will likely have trouble. Hopefully not a lot. Some of us will. Some of us already have plenty on our plate. But all of us will have some. And at some point of every day, God is going to allow the general fallenness of this world, if not the enemy of your soul, Satan, to bring something into your day. Or just, yeah, so it's, it doesn't have to be satanic warfare. It can be. Or it could just be this world doesn't go as we want it to go. An angry child. A demeaning comment from your spouse or friend or somebody. Uh, a terrible traffic ticket. A, a ridiculing coworker, An image on the screen that pops up that you need to flee from that you weren't expecting. A fierce memory of a terrible sin you don't feel forgiven for. A rupturing fear of the future. And then indwelling sin will want to respond to that thing, whatever it is, with some sort of unbelief. Unbelief. And you won't necessarily hear it like this. Don't believe God. Don't believe God. But it will just be there. It will, it will be this form of unbelief that will not, the symptom will be, you will not be drawn to look to God for help. Your eyes will not be drawn to look towards God. Your eyes will be drawn towards other things. Things we talked about, anger, condemnation, depression, or just a sinful pleasure or laziness. But God knows this is going to happen. He knows, he allows it to happen. He has purposes in it. And he allows it to happen, not that you'll fail against it, but that you might learn to fight and fight by leaning on him and using his means to fight. Whatever, it, 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 whatever the means might be, prayer, his word, when it comes to sexual uh, temptation, most of the time the answer is just fleeing, running, like Joseph, as fast as you can away from it, turning away from the temptation, seeking a friend's counsel, comfort, encouragement, confessing to somebody, airing it out, bringing it into the light, or faithfully just trusting God, looking to him for the power to stay on task, the task he's called you to. Isn't that so much, you know, for you moms and dads, what parenting is? I mean, you just, or, or husbands and wives, when you're living with a difficult husband or wife, at least difficult to your senses, you just feel like every other moment, like, oh, I'm empty, I'm empty. And God says, look to me, I have enough. Just what Buzz said this morning. 
Each day has enough trouble as its own. Each day has enough grace to get you through it. Look to me in the moment. Don't worry about five years down the road. Don't worry about next month. Today, there is grace for you. Come and get it. Look to me, look to me. Like weights that oppose and tear at the muscles at the gym in order to, to pave way for the eventual muscle growth, God's at work in these things, using even our enemies to strengthen you in him, to fight in his ways. And, and his ways are all come, come under the banner, first and foremost, depending on him, trusting in him, believing on his promises. Sometimes, though, we spend a lot of time wondering, what is happening to me? What is wrong with me? Why didn't God make it all better? <laughs> when will God make it all better? What happened to the days of blissful, pure joy? I was, I've spent time wondering that question. And, and I guess I come back to the answer again and again. God's just trying to grow me up. I'm a, I'm a man baby. <laughs> and, and God's trying to grow me into a man man. He doesn't want me living for another two decades as a man baby. That's not why he saved me. It's not what any of us want for our kids. God is saying, don't wonder. Don't be surprised. I am growing you. I'm using this to call you to grow. So, point one. God's going to do this. You know it. Remember, he does it. He's calling us not to be surprised. It's part of the call and the heritage of every one of his children. Tribulation, suffering, trial, fighting. A battle is our lot on this earth. Number two, I think the passage shows us that God uses battles to drive us to unity and mutual dependence. God uses battles to drive us to unity and mutual dependence. Reading on. Moses says, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. That's crazy. Like that's, there's no connection between Moses holding up his hands and Joshua's army being good. There's no natural connection. This is a supernatural, miraculous, symbolic, but really happened thing, right? Whenever Moses holds up his hand, Israel wins. Whenever he lowers his hand, Amalek wins. But Moses' hands grow tired. He gets weary. He can't hold his hands up. So they bring a stone and somehow they figured it out. Okay, God, God, you're, you're doing this through this thing of the hands held of, of leader Moses. So Aaron and her, they hold up one side and the whole guy holds up the other side. And as long as their hands are up there, they're kicking butt. Now, this is really confusing, right? Moses sends Joshua. He's the next guy. He's the young lieutenant who will one day be Moses' successor. He sends him with some men to engage the battle with the Amalekites, presumably with God's blessing, right? He's doing what God says. Go send those guys and kick butt. Moses goes above the battle on the hill to hold staff of God, hold the staff of God over the war below. This is the staff that God had given him to, to stretch out over Egypt to bring the plagues. It's the staff he used to stretch out over the Red Sea, to divide it in half which he used to strike against the rock to bring water so Israel would not die of thirst. This is the big staff that Moses has. It represents God's almighty power on behalf of Israel. So he's holding up the staff. Yet something's different here. Moses, in this distance, needs to hold the staff for a long time and naturally gets weary. 
And then this perplexing thing, he lowers his hand and Israel starts to lose. Down it goes. God's power is restricted. He lifts it up. God's power is flowing again. He lowers it down. God's power is restricted. Listen, make no mistake. God has not lost one iota of power. But what God's doing is he's ordaining. He's decided that his almighty power will be limited or controlled, in a sense, by whether or not that staff is being lifted up by Moses or whether it's being lowered. God is ordaining that in this instance, his power will now be affected. Remember we talked about Israel having a passive, passive, passive role early on. And now, as their relationship with God progresses, God's calling them to be more active. He's growing them up. He's ordained that his power will be affected by man's involvement. And what Moses quickly learns is that God is ordaining Moses, who until this event had wielded the staff with absolute success on his own. He's teaching Moses something else. Now Moses needs help from other people to carry out the task that God has called him to. See, not only is God going to call them to move from passivity to engaging and in getting involved in God's battle, he's going to sovereignly ordain that his power here will only be successfully employed only be successfully employed as they unify, as they recognize their weakness, as they, in that weakness, come together to depend on one another. Unity among each other. God's calling for that as they cooperate in the battle. Dependence on each other. Clarity, transparency about weaknesses. They need each other. Do you see that? Moses is still the leader, but it's now their active support of Moses that will allow him to be used of God to give their army the power it needs to defeat the enemy. This is very, very smart of God. If I can speak in this way. Do you remember? You, you, you don't remember because we're not in this series. But, but you need to remember, recall what had just happened before the passage that we're looking at today. The people in the passage, in, in the section just before today, the people were ready to kill Moses. They were ready to stone him to death. They were so filled with anger and resentment and blame. They were going to kill their leader. Well, this is, this is amazing. Because not only is it not enough for God that they not kill Moses. But through this crisis, they will actually need to be drawn in to fully support Moses. And that support is not simply for them to get an boy from God and quiet down the yelling so God can get some sleep. No, it's an issue now. Their support of Moses, they were trying to kill him before. Now they can't just be neutral. Their support of Moses is now an issue of life or death for them. Their unity under their leadership that God's ordained, their support in their weak and limited leader on the hill, helping each other in the battle below, is now Almighty God's ordained means for bringing his power to bear against their enemies. This is probably why I, I think I didn't want to do this message <laughs> above, above all reasons. Because it, it, there's, this, there's this lesson in here about leadership. And going from wanting to kill your leaders to, <laughs> to recognizing their weaknesses and trying to support them. And it can feel very self-aggrandizing to get up and talk to you about this. But, but it, almost all of us in this room have led something. You've led a child. You've led a camp. You've led a ministry. 
You've led yourself through a work situation. Everybody in here has had to steward stuff. And everybody knows that it's hard like to keep doing that, to, to carry a load. Wherever you are as a care group leader, it, it just can get crushing. It can get overwhelming. It's the same thing for me. It's the same thing for any of the guys who are on the leadership team. It's the same for you. You're trying to steward a marriage. You're trying to steward a child. You're trying to steward a vocation. And in the midst of that, God calls his people unified, to unify, to be able to deal with each other in their weaknesses and to be able to hold each other up in their limitations. He exposes those things. His goal isn't to divide and to allow us to point fingers and crush each other, but to help each other. That's what he does in his churches, in his families, in our marriages. As the Trinitarian Father, Son, and the Spirit, the Lord is a God of dependence, of mutual care, of interaction, of transparency, of perfect harmony and love in his image, in himself. And God calls his church to look like that, to to depend on one another, to pour out into one another. So whether it's in our marriage or our attitude towards our our kids or our parents or our attitude towards this church family, God's not only called us to fight our spiritual enemies, he's called us to fight them together, depending on each other, walking in unity. Our unity is a powerful weapon in his hands. It facilitates our using our gifts to care for each other as he attended, to allow each other. Our unity allows each other to be really who we are and all our flaws and all our weaknesses. And instead of finding ourselves like Adam and Eve, ashamed and hiding, we find ourselves in a community as we move towards unity where we can be who we are and find ourselves accepted and helped. And our disunity, our indifference, our judging or gossip or slander, it hampers the flow of his spirit among us. It trashes his image. And when those things are present in the church, his spirit's grieved and his spirit's power is weakened. Most of us are familiar with the Bible's call not to grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. But did you know that that is in the very context, not of sexual morality or not having your quiet time or lying or greed. It's in the context of relationship with one another. It's in the context of unity. Paul writes, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but rather let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor be put away along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How do we grieve God's spirit? Paul says it here, when we complain about each other and give way to anger, talking about or thinking about each other in dishonoring ways. And a few verses later, Paul says, rather be filled with the Spirit. And then what's he say right after? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart for the Lord, speaking to one another. See, there's, you can't separate the Holy Spirit's flow from the community vibe, if I could put it in those crude terms. You, you can't have the Holy Spirit in your prayer closet and just be in disjointed bitterness 
struggle, brokenness, unending with the people around you. There's a corporate nature to our relationship with the Holy Spirit that can't be divorced, can't be separated. So God uses battles to drive us to mutual dependence. Just like Moses did, you and I are going to get weak and weary in our battles. God is not going to just meet us in our isolated lives, in our prayer closets. He will force us to absolutely have to depend on others in order to carry out our mission, in order to keep going. The Lord is going to see to it that you and I will absolutely need each other if we're going to walk in all that God has for us. I think this is probably the biggest battle that I've faced in my own heart in the last year is fighting the battle for unity, patience, love in the community of, of people, of, in the community of this church. And I think that probably more than anything else I can think of, a lot of this really boils down to what Buzz talked about. Am I going to believe God for the grace this day? Am I going to believe God? Not first and foremost, am I going to solve this problem, solve this relationship? Am I going to figure this out with this person? But the first thing is, am I going to look to God? Am I going to trust him? When I find that tension between what he's calling me to do what I want to do. Am I going to bail and hit the eject button? Or am I going to push deeper into him and say, God, even, even you have grace for me to be able to do this, even though it's hard. Give me grace to do this. Give me grace to keep loving. Give me grace to keep forgiving. Give me grace to keep trusting in you. Give me grace to be courage, courageous and say the thing I, I'm afraid to say. Looking not first and foremost at the problem, but first and foremost at God, who promises grace, who promises strength. Finally, last point, God ordains our battles. God ordains that our battles will end in victory through Jesus Christ. God ordains that our battles will end in victory through Jesus Christ. Reading on. And Joshua, overwhelmed with Amalek and his people with the sword, And then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is just basically a huge victory song. It is a huge proclamation of confidence in God's strength. God promised victory. God gave victory. Victory is assured. Remember it. Write it down. Tell it to each other. Write a memorial about it. Israel prevails. Moses on the hill with Aaron and her holding him up. Joshua with the army below. When it's time to write a book about the battle and build a war memorial, nothing about Moses. Nothing about Aaron and her. Nothing about Joshua. (laughs) What do they write? The Lord is my banner. 
And in return for the Amalekites' cowardly and vicious attack on their blood relatives, the weakest and most vulnerable, God proclaims, I'm going to completely destroy this nation. I will always be at war with them as long as they're around. Absolute confidence in God and God alone. Is Moses being unfair to Aaron and her, his buddies who helped him? Is he being unfair to Joshua and all those men below? I'm sure some of them died in the battle, I assume. No. Nope. He is keeping the burden of the battle on the only place it can rightfully and safely belong. The burden of the battle is to be on God's shoulders. The credit goes to God. The burden, even better news for us, belongs to the Lord. Yes, God called on Joshua to fight. Yes, God had Aaron and Moses and her help, help him. But the miracle of the staff demonstrated to all of Israel once again that even though a war was being fought with human hands, its success was completely dependent, not on human hands, but on the power of God. And this dynamic represents a fundamental principle throughout all of the New Testament. We are to fight our battles, however long, however short, day by day. Fighting is what we're called to do. Fight the fight of faith. But it's a fight of faith, first and foremost. It's a fight of faith. In who? In faith? No, it's a fight of faith in God. That he will give us victory. Yes, we're to fight sin, stand against the enemy of our souls. But we're never to carry the burden of that battle. We're never to carry the burden of the success of the outcome on our shoulders and believe that it it ultimately, crucially, depends on us. If I might use a really poor metaphor, we're called to play the Super Bowl. Believing that regardless of our own abilities, the final score will be our team 500 and the opposing team zero. That that's a done deal. That that's a finished deal. In Colossians 3, we're told that when Christ raises arms across another beam of wood on another hill, he forever disarmed, finished our enemies. He, he put them to rout. He put them to shame. He won an ultimate and absolute victory over them on our behalf. The, the New Living Trans- Translation credits, credibly, credibly unpacks the meaning of this passage. It says it this way. You were dead. You were dead because of your sins. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. It's, it's over for them. On that day, 2,000 years ago, Satan was defeated. We're just called to live it out and see it, participate in it. But the battle, the battle victory was secured on that day. There's gorillas in the mountains and in the hills. They come in for skirmishes. But it's all under God's authority and control. It, do you know why 
any sin would have the right to rule over you. Any sin you're battling with, any addiction, anything that you're just bound by. Do you know why it has a right to rule over you? Do you know why Satan would ever have authority to keep you imprisoned in condemnation, in despair? The only reason why he would ever be allowed to do that is because we stand guilty before God. And that, that bondage to sin, that bondage to despair and condemnation, that's punishment from God for rejecting him. The Bible is clear that when we turned from God and decided to be our own God, we talked about this two weeks ago, the Lord's punishment was essentially handing us over to our own sinful hearts and for Satan to rule them. We said, God, we don't want you to be a ruler. God said, okay, you'll get your own sin and you'll get Satan if you don't want me and my goodness. That's your prison. But what right does sin and Satan have to rule our lives if your guilt is taken away? What right does sin and Satan have to be your prison if Jesus dies for all of your sin? What right? None. What right does Satan and sin have to rule you if Jesus died for all of your sins? Are you guys still awake? This is a really big deal. This is a really big deal for you and for me. This is about looking to the Lord and what he's done for our power, for our hope, and not ourselves. So I'll ask it again. If sin and Satan's rule are God's judgment on us, for the first sin of rejecting God. If they're God's just prison he puts us into. For that sin of rejecting God. What right does Satan and sin have to keep us in that prison. If God has forgiven us of all our sins. None. None. When Jesus died for all of our sins, all of them, past, present, and future, when he, as this passage says, canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross, he took away any right that sin or Satan have to rule over us. Yes, we're going to battle. Yes, we're going to struggle. Yes, we're going to war. God, for some reason, and the reason he gives us that he wants to shape us, he wants to conform us, has left us some work to do on this earth against our enemies. But he hasn't left a question about whether we can win. He hasn't left us to question about whether or not he will deliver us. No. He says, yes, use means, call out to me, ask me for help. I'm not going to give you everything in one second. But I gave you the victory 2,000 years ago. We just got a lifetime to work it out in real relationship. We got a lifetime of you depending on me. You calling out to me. You witnessing my glory and my help and my power and my mercy and my grace again and again and again. That's going to have to happen in real time. I really want to have a relationship with you. But the victory is assured. The victory is won. I'm not leaving the ultimate victory up to you. And our first fight, our first fight in this battle is to believe that God ordains our sure victory through Jesus Christ. It's not just enough to pull us up by our own bootstraps and fight sin. It's not enough to put in a valiant effort. Our battles against our own sin, against Satan's attempts to seduce us, to condemn us, they are simply too much for us. And so we fight by faith. 
to put the battle on the Lord where it belongs, on the shoulders of the one who is meant to carry its full weight. I woke up earlier this week with an amazing temptation to spend wasted time on my phone. And I didn't think God wanted me to. I just wanted to go to sports. I was sick. I want to give myself a pass. And that morning, I just didn't have a sense that that's what God wanted for me. It was an overwhelming temptation. I had a sense that God wanted something over here and that I wanted something over here. And the over here thing I wanted was huge to me. It was so big. And then I remembered God's promise. That no temptation has overcome me. That's common, but that's just common to man. And God is faithful. With the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that I can endure it. And I decided that I'm going to take this tiny, measly, weakest of weak mustard seeds of faith. And I'm going to put it over there where God says, I will be faithful. And that's all I did. In, in the decision of my heart, I just said, okay, God, you said you can give me some grace for this thing that just feels overwhelming. And this doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like a major thing. But the principle translates to everything. The principle translates to addiction to pornography or alcohol or laziness. You can go to hell in loud ways. You can go to hell in quiet ways. But the principle's the same. God has what you need. He calls you to exercise the mustard seed of faith to believe him for it. And then to move forward accordingly. And he gave me that spark, he gave me that charge, and I, I walked out and couldn't believe what I, that I didn't, that I went to my quiet time or I went to some devotional materials. I was like, wow, that felt so overwhelming. We must fight our battles believing that the Lord has what we need, that he wins our battles for us. Yes, we use prayer, we meditate on God's word, we rely on the counsel of others, we worship, we sing, we fast. There's a whole scheme of different means that we we use to depend on God in, in these ways. But, but here's what, what will not change. Whatever means we employ, prayer, God's word, relying on the counsel of others, worship, singing, fasting, whatever means we employ, we must believe it is God at work in us and through us and around us and that he will sooner or later bring the victory that Christ already won on the cross, into our present battle and experience. We must make sure the burden is on God's shoulders. We must fight the fight of faith. And that's why that rock doesn't have Moses' name on it. It doesn't have Aaron's name on it. It doesn't have Hur's name on it. It doesn't have Joshua's name on it. It only has God's name on it. Because God is the one who gives the victory. He's the one that we depend on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you know how much I need to live by the words of this message and how tempted I am to turn every moment to unbelief, to laziness, to despair, discouragement. And you know, to whatever degree that's true of every single soul in this room, I ask for grace for myself and for my brothers and sisters that we would be emboldened 
by your Holy Spirit and by something from your word, even this word today, to put our hand to the plow, to get up off the floor, and to once again, Lord, fight the fight of faith that Jesus has defeated our enemies. That you have what we need each day to live for you. That no matter how big, loud, attractive, overwhelming, discouraging sin appears to be, Satan seems to us, our own heart's weaknesses seem to us, you are bigger than all of that stuff. And you ask us to fight the fight of faith, believing on you, that you've won and that you will give us all that we need to serve you, to endure, to suffer, to rejoice. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.